Welcome back, everybody. How's it going out there? Hope it's going well. You're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting alongside my partner, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Andrew. Well, good, good. Thank you very much. I'm doing great too, Jeff. Thank you very much for asking. Anyways, we hope everybody's having a good day out there. Uh, we really want to thank everybody for tuning in. As I said, you're listening to the podcast. Of course, uh, what we do is we go over things from the website or just talk about all things related to investing. Uh, today, we are going to be going over questions that people had asked us on Twitter. Every now and then, we will tweet out things um, or a call for questions for people to just ask pretty much whatever. No, no, um, no sort of guidelines. And uh, a lot of people have asked us questions, so we sort of grouped them together, and uh, we have a list of questions to go through today. So if you want to reach myself on Twitter, my Twitter is at Focused Compound. And Jeff, what is yours? Uh, at Jeff Gannon. You want to spell that for the for the listeners? At G-E-O-F-F-G-A-N-N-O-N. See, what's funny, actually, somebody asked me one time, they're like, is it is it Jeff? Is that his name? I'm like, yeah, it's it's, it's Jeff. But anyway, so cool. So um, we're just going to kind of roll with it. We both have seen these questions, but like I said, we just kind of compiled the ones that we thought would be good to uh, sort of go over. And uh, there may be, uh, we may answer them for you know, a couple minutes or maybe a couple seconds, but whatever it is, we're just going to kind of roll with it. So the first question comes from Nick Webb. Uh, and it says, if intrinsic value is the discounted value of all future cash flows, how can it grow over time apart from interest rates changing? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I For the reports that are up on the website, um, which we have about two dozen of, uh, we use something called appraisal value instead of intrinsic value. And there's a reason for doing that. Uh, I don't really like the concept of intrinsic value that way for the reason that he just pointed out. Um, theoretically, you know, the, um, uh, the, what would happen is that you would know to, uh, you could know that a stock was always cheap in the past. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that, I think with America's car market or something like that, where it had traded at maybe on average, uh, one times receivables or something when it needed to trade at like 1.5 to kind of equalize the return versus the S and P. So what will happen is, uh, that if, Honestly, you would get an insanely high intrinsic value if you correctly predicted the future. So like trying to predict what Amazon's intrinsic value is, if you got it right, you would have assigned it, you know, 100, 200, 300 times PE. Uh, and so I just don't like that as a, as a concept, intrinsic value. So when you say appraisal value, though, like what do you, what do you mean? How do you think about that instead of intrinsic value? So we pick a different way of doing it for each stock. Um, sometimes it has something very close to intrinsic value, like for Luxottica, I think we assigned it a a PE of like 27 or something like that. And the way that we did it was based on uh, expected future growth and how much cash they could pay out. So that works like intrinsic value. That's sort of like a DCF. Mm -hmm. um, but for a lot of others, it's based on peer valuation. Um, it could be based on assets that they have. It could be based on what the stock has traded in the past. Um, the, the main thing that we used is to equalize what we expect the future return be against the S&P. Do you think of it also you, so you, more so an opportunity cost? Is that what you mean by that? Or yeah, so like when people ask about what do we use as the um, discount rate or whatever, yeah, basically what we're using as the discount rate is the S and P five hundred. Um, because what do you mean, like the return, the expected future return? Yeah. But but we're a little cautious about that because when we expect it to be low, like right now, I'd expect the S and P to be low um, over the next fifteen years or something, which is how far out I probably look to um, appraise the stock. I'll still use a higher number, like 8% or something, mm -hmm. even though I might expect the S&P to return less than that. So you think, I mean, and you don't use DCFs per se, right? It's more back no. of the envelope. No, but like I said with Luxottica, 
that works a lot like a DCF, what I just explained to you, is um, that they would pay out like 90% of their earnings and that their earnings could grow at like 10% a year for a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it works like that. So there are a couple like I think Granger, Luxottica, maybe Omnicom that we basically valued a lot based on um, something similar to a DCF. Interesting. And if you want to get access to that CarMart report that is on the website in the report mm-hmm. section, there's many others just like that. Be sure to use podcast as the promo code to get $10 off yeah. the subscription price forever. Perfect. So I know you sort of went into that a little bit, but his next question, what do you use as a discount rate and why? Presumably the 30-year treasury rate is problematic because of QE. Yeah. So I never use government bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see me sometimes reference the 30-year um, BAA. Um, there's a Moody's. You can get it on Fred, which is the um, uh, what St. Louis uh, Fed, I think, website, um, which has a lot of data on that. So it's just a it's useful because you can pull up at any moment. Um, and that would be a long-term corporate bond. Uh, so if I I don't use discount rates that way because I think your opportunity cost in a stock is the index. I mean, for me, it's higher than the index because it's another stock pick. So in my own portfolio, I'm looking at it versus another particular stock. Sure. Mm-hmm. But for valuing it for like the reports, we would use the S&P. We would never use a bond. But if you were going to use a bond, I would use a very long-term bond. And I would actually not use AAA um, because I think there's a problem in doing that. Uh, at certain times, there can be a problem in doing that because uh, sometimes quality it gets very, very expensive. And so in like a panic or something like that, you can have things like what you're talking about there where government bonds are just incredibly expensive. Um, I think I've mentioned before that I, when I bought Omnicom in 2009, uh, the free cash flow yield would have been in the low teens probably. At the mm-hmm. same time, the, the um, long-term treasury bonds would have been at like maybe 3% or something. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense in terms of using it as a discount rate. Interesting. And in your own personal, I mean, you said you kind of distinguish it between the reports and your own personal investing. Yeah. In your own personal investing, do you sort of think about or do you apply like a discount rate to it? Is less than 10%. Yeah. So so what do you do, though? You project out like EBIT or or like some sort of net income and then di- discount it back and then throw a multiple on that? Or how's your Yeah. So I can tell you process? about that right yeah. now because mm-hmm. I was just thinking about recently, I was just thinking, should I sell some BWX technologies and buy another stock? Mm-hmm. And so my thinking on how to do that is I looked forward about five years, said, how much do I think BWX can return? What kind of PE would it have? So like how fast can it grow earnings? So let's yep. say it could grow earnings at, they have guidance for next year. Okay. So you take the guidance for next year. That's important because of tax reasons. You have to use company's guidance for this next year because past years aren't going to be accurate. Sure. Um, then I said, okay, what if it grows earnings by 10% a year for the next five years? They've said long-term guidance. They can grow low teens uh, or low double digits for three to five years. So let's use 10% for five years. And then you put a PE of, say, 20 or 25 on it. If that works out to be a return of 7% or something, mm-hmm. in, in terms of where the stock is now versus where it'd be in five years, then you can think about selling. But if it turned out to be 14% or something, well, then it's going to be very hard for me to find something to replace it with. And I would never have a stock that I think will return 15 or 18 or something and replace something I think is going to return 14. Mm-hmm. I need it to be a big gap. Yeah. So if I find something that I think will return 15 over the next five years, to replace something that I think will be six or seven, then that's an easy decision. And that's what I'm looking for. So it's really more so opportunity costs and comparing one investment to another. And what's so funny is before I met you, and maybe this is a good lesson for a lot of people, is that I was so like financial model based and everything and all these formulas and calculations, because I guess that's when you learn like financial theory. A lot of that Mm -hmm. is sort of like that. And then you're just, you have a more practical way of looking at it. I guess you could say simpler, which I think in investing's case is um, 
you know, probably a lot better than all those uh, statistics or all those formulas and stuff the other way. Yeah, I think I, I posted something on Focus Compounding about this. Mostly, I think in terms of five, 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. three sort of snapshots, instead of doing like a full DCF or something, you think in terms of, well, what would the stock be priced in five years, 10, 15? Mm-hmm. And then I really think in terms of, will it return 5%, 10%, or 15% a year? So you're looking for something, ideally, that's going to return 15% a year over 15 years. So wait, when you say, just so the listeners could, could sort of get, when you say return 5, 10, 15%, mm-hmm. what, is, what are you classifying as that return? The stock price? or the stock EPS, price. free stock, cash flow? Okay. Stock. Okay. So it gets complicated because like the reason why you do it that way is to compare value and growth things. Sure. So um, uh, like for instance, the stock I was looking at replacing BWX with, I looked and said, okay, what do I think it'll return? And I decided that if it, um, if the value gap closed in five years, I could make 15% a year in the stock. Uh-huh. But if it took 15 years for the value gap to close, I'd only make 8%. Sure. Because the growth in like intrinsic value or what I would say appraisal value, the underlying growth in the stock is only like 8% a year or something. Mm-hmm. So if you hold it for too long, it'll underperform other stocks. Mm-hmm. But if there's a value gap, like you're buying 60 cents on the dollar, sure. then in five years or less, you could return 15% or more. And I, I like especially to look at five to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. And then he has one last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that we know what the future held for C's Candies, what was its rough intrinsic value in 1972? Well, it has a totally different intrinsic value depending on whether it's controlled by Warren Buffett or not. Sure. Well, that's so, a good point. I don't yeah. think a lot of people... Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Yeah. C's Candy hasn't grown the um, number of pounds of chocolate that it sells by that much each year. So let's say it increases the real price of a pound sold by 2% a year or something under Buffett. But what it does is it reallocates all of that capital. And so that's hugely important. Um, uh, like in the report that we have about Omnicom, we value Omnicom somewhat differently than other stocks because we know that it'll buy back stock and pay dividends. If we didn't know what the company would do, like maybe we don't know what Dentsu would do, um, which is another a- a company that does the same thing as Omnicom, it's ad agencies, um, we would value it differently because they have to allocate, like an ad agency has to allocate about 100% of earnings. It comes in the form of free cash flow. Mm-hmm. Seize Candies is the same way. So C's Candies would not have been worth remotely what it ended up being worth if it wasn't part of Berkshire because it needed someone to be a capital allocator to say, don't grow, don't actually try to grow. And they really haven't gone much at all like east of the Mississippi or anything like that. They're still very big in California. Mm-hmm. And they've mostly raised the price of their chocolates. And then they, on top of that, they've reallocated all that money. So the difference in terms of capital allocation is huge. And capital allocation has a big difference in terms of various assets. Like, if I could control the capital allocation of some companies, I would value them a lot higher than what I actually value them at because I'm valuing them based on the current management allocating the capital. Interesting. Well, thank you very much to Nick for those three questions. We appreciate it. Uh, next question comes from Twitter also. Will Kane says, we see disruption and weakening moats in multiple industries from media to consumer packaged goods. Are there areas and industries where you think moats are getting stronger? Yes. So moats are stronger in smartphones. I just retweeted yeah. something about that, that what's really impressive is not the, the article is more about whether um, Apple or uh, iOS or Android had higher retention rates. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. The important thing is that they both have really high retention rates sure. compared to what it used to be. So that's higher. Um, we did a report on Progressive, which is up on Focus Compounding. The moat of Progressive and Geico is a lot higher now than it was in 1998 or whenever they, they started uh, um, signing up a lot of policies Why is online. that? Because in the early years of 
insurance sales online, mm-hmm. car insurance. There was sort of like meta search for um, cars, uh, for car insurance, sort of like you see a little bit in travel now, mm-hmm. right? And then what happened is basically everyone goes with Geico, uh, Progressive, or, U- or USAA. And we kind of mentioned that although people think that it's the barriers to entry are lower, they're higher because people go directly to those companies. Sure. Yeah. So that that's a higher moat. Um, Apple has a greater moat than it did before. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, so those are industries that are more settled. I, I also think that's true. Um, I'd say that's also true of, like, I think Facebook has a wider moat than um, MySpace did. That's Not just in sure. terms of uh, Facebook versus MySpace, but in terms of just the, the Internet today mm-hmm. versus what it was then. I think that um, Google in video has a wider moat. Mm-hmm. Uh, in search, it does not have a wider moat than it used to in, in, in d- a desktop search. How do you factor that in? <laughs> well, I mean, because you think, I mean, what's the searches? I don't ever go to like Bing and, and search something. Right, but know? how often do you type directly into Amazon a shopping thing? As in like like what knowing already what I want and then going to Amazon? No, like so if you want a Crock-Pot, do you type Crock-Pot into Google? No, I, I type it into Amazon. So, so that's a search that yeah, Google uh-huh, lost. Sure. And they're uh-huh. going to continue to lose that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge difference there. Mm-hmm. And actually, ad rates, well, return on advertising for shopping is really impressive, online uh, retail. But a lot of that could go to people like uh, Amazon. Sure. Um, and also to sorts of ads that take you directly there. Mm-hmm. So you see some sort of ad, a mobile ad or whatever, you click it and then you buy something that way. Either way, I think that a lot of that goes away from um google over time so it depends on how you define it i guess if you're defining the market as search Mm -hmm. being like yes google has two-thirds or whatever of that market and still does Mm -hmm. but uh if you're defining as a way that people find information online like how they get to buying a product i think yeah that's a moat that's narrow yeah i agree with you and then his last question which i'm sure i already know the answer any opinion on united health unh I don't have an opinion on it. I've looked. It a, I've looked a lot at healthcare. Why? Because uh, of everything in the news lately with Berkshire and Amazon and is it J.P. Morgan? Yeah, yeah. J.P. Morgan. Uh, no, the opposite. Uh, because it looks fairly cheap, but it's very predictable. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've looked at. Um, so th- that includes uh, distribution stuff like drug distributors. Um, it includes uh, stuff that has to do with pharmacy benefits. Um, it has to do with um, insurers. All of that. Uh, the problem is that I'm just afraid there's too much change there. Do you like the pharmaceutical and like the drug business? No. Is it like, why? Because of regulatory things? Or, I mean, you think about it. I mean, it's a very like high free cash flow, you know, type industry, high I, return, you know, capital and all that, all the above. You'd think it would check all the boxes of what, you know, value investors would look for. I don't like it because I invest in a company called IMS Health, which is sort of public. It is public again under a new name. It merged with some other stuff. Um, and I invested in a company that did lab testing stuff. Both of those um, were a while ago. Uh, I'm not convinced that returns on actually discovering new drugs are decent. Really? Uh, for the last 20 years or so, everything that I've tried to find out about that tells me that uh, I'm not sure that's such a good business. Um, actually doing your own R&D and uh, releasing new drugs that way. Um, now they can buy other things. They have lots of... Um, a lot of companies can't bring drugs to market themselves, so they end up selling out to another company. But mm-hmm. I just think that buying new stuff to put in your – to replace what's coming off patent is really expensive. Uh, I'm not convinced the returns are there um, compared to, like, other uses of 
I can calculate better the returns on advertising from some brand or something better than I can an R and D at a, at sure. a drug company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's it for, for Will Kane's questions. I actually like this next question and, and it's from, hopefully I pronounce it right. Vettel Forschlad. And he's written for the, for, he's written up on the focus compounding website before. Uh, where, where'd you say he's from? Do you remember? Uh, Norway. I think. Norway. Yeah. But he, his question was, what would you do for a living if you never found out about investing? Uh, right. I would be a writer. Yeah. Like yeah. A what? Like like journalism and stuff? Uh, maybe. Maybe yeah. fiction. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to think I'd be like some Hollywood actor or something yeah. like that. <laughs> no, I really, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I, I guess investing is always what I've, I've never really um, diverged from that since I was 13 years old. That's all I ever really wanted to do was something in the markets and I've known what I wanted to do for a very long time. Um but I really, I really don't know, honestly, if I, if what I would want to do or what I would be doing if, um, if I never found out about investing, because, um, you know, I just, I really don't have a good answer. Maybe be, I mean, other topics that interest me outside of investing is, um, technology, like okay, yeah. startups and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So maybe I would have like the, I guess like entrepreneurship, building things and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of building, uh, businesses that way. So I probably would have been over there but really i don't know because what's cool about investing is i think it's a good place for a lot of people to start um because you learn so much about business and you mm-hmm. learn so much about many different businesses you learn a lot about accounting and you could take those skills anywhere with you mm-hmm. you know so that's why i think um you know investing is such a good place to start for so many people just because you learn so much about so many different businesses and that's just all that knowledge is so relevant to i guess any area of life that you want to go into i mean even if you want to start like a a charity or just something so mm-hmm. random that's like completely the opposite of of i mean investing you're trying to make money charity what are you doing you're mm-hmm. you know kind of giving money away in some regard and um but the skills that you learn invest in investing they just are so you know relevant to so many other areas of life but uh, what would I be doing? I really don't know. I mean, this is all I've really wanted to do. Um, but I, I think it would be probably something um, in the startup land, something mm-hmm. just being an entrepreneur, I guess I could say. Um, but like I said, investing is great because you could take those skills and really apply them to pretty much every area of life, which is, I think, pretty cool. So you, you'd be you'd be a journalist, journalist you think? Uh, some kind of writing, yeah. 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 Well, you're definitely good at that. Perfect. And then the next question, last question. Thank you very much for asking that, by the way, but that was, that was a good question. Uh, last one comes from Philip Hutchinson. Do you think your returns would have been better if you never found out about value investing? Uh, would teenage you have mm-hmm. avoided some of the mistakes you have made as a value investor? Your style now seems to have reverted to close to what you did when you started out as a teenager. That's a very good question. That's a long one to answer. That's very long. <laughs> that could be a whole podcast. Um, so, and uh, I mean, I can see statistically, we talked about the fact that I owned one stock um, in September of 2001, and that was um, Activision. Uh, and in fact, I put all of my money into Activision at one point there. Well, if I had held that through to today, I would guess that would return about 25% a year over the uh, years that followed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it would be hard to outperform that by doing anything else that I've been doing. So in, in that one instance, definitely, yeah, I would have done better if I had um, done what I did as a teenager. Um, yeah, there's a lot of mistakes that I made, sort of uh, classic value investor mistakes that I wouldn't have made if I'd invested the way I did uh, as a teen. Um, there's some things that I'm not sure I would have uh, that made me money that I'm not sure I would have done unless I'd evolved a little bit from there. Um, the Japanese net nets were successful. Bank insurance was successful. Some spinoffs, some things like that. Mm-hmm. Um 
I don't know if I would have eventually started doing those things or not. Uh, if my, I, I think overall probably learning about value investing was somewhat harmful. Really? Yeah. Uh, learning about like in terms of reading books about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I read like hundreds of books about it or whatever. Yeah. I would say that it was probably somewhat harmful there. So um, what would you tell your teenage self now knowing what you know now? that's ready to get investing and excited about it and doesn't know necessarily which direction to go. Right. I, I guess I would have, um, not to over intellectualize it mm-hmm. to do the practical things that I was already doing. Um, I think that that would make the most sense. And also I was working with, um, not a lot of money. Um, some of the things that, uh, I've read about and stuff would make more sense if I was managing a lot of money and had to own 50 or hundred stocks or something. It would have been hard for me to do that. Um, the way that I invest as a teenager would be hard for me to do that now. Um, mm-hmm. because, but it, you know, if I'm going to own five stocks or less, yeah, a lot of the philosophy that I had as a teen, um, would be at least as good now. And in some ways I think it makes more sense than some of the stuff about investing like books. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that was a very good question. We want to thank everybody for asking uh, or writing in for these questions. As always, uh, we will tweet out in the future whenever we're going to do a call for questions and, you know, feel free to certainly contribute to that and we will get you in on the podcast. We want to thank everybody for listening today. You're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. My name is Andrew Kuhn here today with Mr. Jeff Gannon. And of course, be sure to sign up on the Focus Compounding website using the promo code podcast to get $10 off your monthly subscription price forever. Jeff, do you have anything else to add? Nope, that's it. (laughs) That's it. All right. Well, we'll see everybody in the next one. Thank you very much.